top five of water importers in the world. And when you think about how much water we have in the UK as a result of our climate, that, that's a pretty shocking statistic, really. And obviously, the, the water that's embedded in those products that come into the into the UK through food and, and wood and so on is water that's been taken out often from water-stressed countries. This is episode two of a three-part pod series looking at what's really driving biodiversity loss here in Scotland. With me again is Nature Scott's Strategic Resource Manager for Nature and Climate Change, Dr Clive Mitchell, and Hutton Plants Ecologist, Professor Robin Pakeman, who is lead author of the report that sparked this mini-series. In episode one, we looked at how we got to where we are and some of the complex issues behind biodiversity loss in Scotland. In this episode, we look more at how addressing this challenge isn't always as straightforward as it seems, especially when it comes to our food systems and the increasing multiple demands in farming sector and land use management. Choices that may be good for Scotland could result in greater loss of biodiversity elsewhere. Robin, I think you have some good examples of these conundrums. Yeah, that's one of the striking things from the report is how connected our decision making in Scotland is to the rest of the world. So if you think about um, you know, the current situation in Scotland, lots of people don't like plantation forestry because it's not very good for biodiversity. Um, people probably applaud the fact that if we replace the plantation forest with some native woodland, that will be a really good thing. But that doesn't solve the problem of where we're going to get the wood that we need from. Scotland's not too bad. It imports about a quarter of the wood it needs, but we're still importing from somewhere. So places like Sweden or Estonia, they're cutting down old forest to supply timber needs for the rest of the world, including Scotland. And therefore, our decision not to have more plantation forest or to replace plantation forest by native woodland means that we're affecting the biodiversity in other countries because they're using their old growth forests, which are stuffed full of biodiversity. You know, another example might be the way we use um, a lot of our land for growing barley to feed to livestock. So therefore we import our food from elsewhere. So things like wheat and pulses that we eat. And therefore we're building up demand in other countries for their arable land so that we can have a almost a luxury product in forming in growing meat off the products of arable land rather than off grassland. So that's driving biodiversity loss in those other countries as it's pushing their systems and pushing the biodiversity off their land. And also it has the effect of increasing global grain and legume prices that we can, you know, we can afford as a country to feed those grain and pulses to livestock, but that's uh, increasing the prices um, globally meaning that people around the world are having to pay higher prices. And that's that's quite hard in those um, places where incomes are very low. So we're directly contributing to problems. The decisions we make have really unforeseen consequences that you have to sit down hard and think about, you know, this long chain of, of effects that has a, a sort of global reach for all our daily decision making. Yeah, and I guess that offers a real conundrum for consumers trying to understand, well, if you do want to eat beef, how's it yeah. being produced? What's the best yeah. beef to eat? I was going to say, even in there, there's a trade-off. So people uh, want to grow, you know, cows as quickly as possible to reduce their methane impacts. 
but that requires inputs of, of grains and legumes where um, you know, it has all these ongoing biodiversity impacts. There's a real, you know, there's a potential trade-off between biodiversity and climate change in this one. So, so yeah, Robin makes a number of really important points there. I think there's a there's a sort of an underlying theme of demand, you know, to satisfy our needs. And there are in most of the um, policy solutions that have been put forward to address climate nature, they're mainly concerned with productivity and yield and efficiency, you know, trying to do more with less, all of which contributes to, to GDP and, and growth. So from a political point of view, those are not problematic at all. But there are a number of different challenges within that. So as Robin's outlined, and so overall, in order to address some of these underlying drivers of biodiversity loss and, and climate change, there will be a need to, to think about why we need to consume all of that stuff in the way that we do. In some senses, it, it doesn't really matter what we eat and what we consume, so long as we marry the sustainable production of, of stuff with limited environmental impacts and social impacts with the sustainable consumption of it. And, and that varies enormously, you know, across different countries across the world. So Robin referred to our needs and our needs are very different to, to needs in other countries because needs are kind of socially contextualized. What we think we need to live in the UK is, is very different to what people in other countries need to live. So the, the distribution of demand and, and of supply is, is one of the sort of key factors that, that's led to, uh, you know, some of the problems associated with, with climate nature, and the use of resources, including fossil fuels and, and energy and the products of land use and so on are very unevenly distributed with most of the consumption taking place in developed countries like the UK and elsewhere, and most of the production taking place in developing countries. And uh, in terms of climate impacts, it's mainly the emissions are occurring uh, directly or indirectly in developed countries and the impacts that are in developing countries. And so those asymmetries in resource use and demand uh, play out massively in, in, the, in the state of climate and nature. Just to follow on from that is that the UK, there's no figures for Scotland, but the UK is the fifth biggest exporter of its biodiversity impact. So our consumption patterns are driving biodiversity loss around the globe. And you could argue that it's our responsibility to actually stop offshoring our impacts as far as we can. And, you know, that's, you know, depends very much on where things can produce globally. So we can't produce everything or, you know, we can't grow everything in, in Scotland. But as far as we can, we should be thinking about how we reduce that global impact. Could you give some examples of that? So, you know, we're importing an awful lot of, of produce that we could grow ourselves. We could onshore our impacts um, in terms of growing our own food much more than we do at the moment. We don't have a huge amount of arable land in Scotland, but a lot of that is used for growing barley and barley hardly features in human diets. It's um, we drink a lot of it and we feed a lot of it to animals. So it indirectly feeds through to a human's diet, but, but that's really ecologically inefficient. So if we onshored more of our food production, 
then we would have to rely less on other countries. That has the added benefit of improving our food security, so we're less reliant on other countries. You know, the current war in Ukraine shows how fragile the global economy is in terms of food supply. So, you know, wheat and sunflower oil exports from Ukraine uh, were massively reduced, leading to a big spike in prices. But if we can grow more of our own, then we're more insulated from those global impacts. And it may not be war in the future. It may be uh, really bad weather in the States or in China or in other places where they grow a lot of the food we consume. And therefore, we could insulate ourselves a bit more from that if we were, you know, using our fairly equable climate um, to produce that food of our own. So just to just build on that, I, I think the um, the food imports uh, and indeed wood that Robin referred to earlier also carry a very significant water footprint with them. That um, food is just water repackaged in various forms mm. in many ways, and so as a result of our food and and wood imports and so on, the UK is within the top five of water importers in the world. When you think about how much water we have in the UK as a result of our climate, that that's a pretty shocking statistic, really. And obviously, the the water that's embedded in those products that come into the into the UK through food and and wood and so on is water that's been taken out often from water stressed countries and their food systems and availability to to feed them feed feed people in those countries and so on. So, the global food system has been, you know, I think in the last five, 10 years, increasingly exposed as a, as a major contributing factor to climate degradation and nature degradation, you know, throughout the world. That's interesting and a fascinating fact about the water imports. We're talking about growing more food locally here in Scotland, increasing food security, but we've also talked about regenerative land management in the previous episode. and there's a potentially bit of a short-term productivity loss with that change in land management. How do we marry those two? So I think um, that's a really important point. And there was a report done for the Climate Change Committee late last year that, that looked at some of this and concluded that um, in some food systems, there might be a sort of 10 to 15% hit on yield associated with switching over to regenerative um, systems. However, having said that, I think there's a there's a few things to consider, you know, in the in the significance of that. So I think an important consideration is that most of our food systems for the last 70 years have revolved around productivity and yield and government policy and practice, industrial research, on-farm advice, um, training and education of, of farmers in colleges and so on and foresters, et cetera, has all geared around productivity and yield. And I think if we put as much effort into uh, researching on the basis of regenerative practices, we probably wouldn't find necessarily huge amounts of difference between potential productivity and yield uh, associated with those more regenerative practices. So I think there's a fair bit degree of catching up to do in terms of just how regenerative systems can, can work for the benefit of, of people and planetary systems. But the other point I was going to make in that relation in regard to that as well is that, as Robin has pointed out a couple of times already, a lot of our crops go into producing biscuits and, and alcohol and uh, and so forth um, that um, 
that are not feeding healthy food to people and feed for animals as well, I should include in that. So I think if you look um, globally, and I think certainly across the UK, in terms of the, the amount of land that is actually used for growing healthy food for people, so excluding feed, alcohol, high fat, salt, sugar diets, and so on, uh, you're probably left with much less than half of that land actually being given over to producing healthy food for, for people. So in my mind, there's an awful lot of capacity for regenerative practices. And as I mentioned, if, if there is a kind of an adjustment to be made around a short-term uh, hit on yield, then it's marrying the demand, adjusting the demand so that uh, in the short term, at least they align and, and we're able to, to, to switch to those more regenerative practices. Something I have to mention here is our Centre for Sustainable Cropping down at our site in Dundee, where we've been looking at intercropping and we're in our, well, we've just finished our second of two six-year cycles, looking at how these impacts play out, that move towards regenerative farming, and it's looking positive. There's some information about on the new site, if anyone wants to follow up on that. Sorry, advertising breakover. Robin, do you want to drop in? One thing to note in this area is that governments pulled in the UK pulled out of giving agricultural advice and support two or three decades ago, deciding it was something for the private sector. Arguably, the private sector has been really successful at the field scale at saying how you grow this crop, the best varieties, the best plant protection products. And it's been spectacularly successful, I think. But that's at the field scale. We need to think about what's best at the farm scale, at the regional scale, and the national scale. Uh, and this has, I think, been realised by the Scottish Government is they've got to now step back into this area of providing advice to the agricultural sector about how farming needs to adapt to do all the things it needs to do. It needs to keep growing the crops we need to eat. It needs to keep, you know, doing other things that farming does for us. It needs to think about, you know, clean water, carbon, um, storing carbon in soils. It needs to think about biodiversity. And a lot of these practices happen at larger scales in the field. So uh, more advice on how the farming sector needs to adapt to different circumstances, to the multiple demands that society is now recognising that it's making on these farmers. And to shift mindsets to thinking about long-term sustainability at a farm and national scale, rather than just thinking about what we can do to make um, you know profits larger, which is effectively what we've been, um, you know, you know what farmers are thinking about. They have to survive economically, so the government has to think about it, how it can support that economic survival and get farmers to deliver all the sort of things we need to, to see them delivering. Yeah, so I think that raises a, a number of really interesting and and quite deeply challenging points. So first thing, on the kind of bright side, very much the, the sort of the skills and um, knowledge that that is required to support that more diverse um, food system that, that Robin described just now um, has the potential to bring an awful lot of employment into rural areas in contrast to the you know downward trends of the last several decades as a result of machinery and, and chemical inputs and, and so on into those more productive systems. So so I think that you know that's hugely beneficial potentially 
And then the other big question that lies behind a lot of that is, is the notion of cheap food and, and what exactly is cheap food and, and who ends up paying for it? So that, that's a difficult question to, to raise in a, in a kind of cost of living crisis. But in a sense, that, that tells its own story. So if you think about the way in which food systems are supported within the UK, including the, the subsidies um, that go into to farming and forestry and so on from government, uh, added to um, some of the costs of pollution, which aren't borne by by anybody. And then the cost of the NHS of dealing with the health problems arising from poor diets, including the, the amount of high fat, sugar, salt diets, um, alcohol, and so on. The, the aggregate cost to, to society of, of that cheap food system is not cheap. And and so, I you know, the, the, there is there's something I think deeply wrong with our food systems in, in terms of some of those unintended consequences and the fact that uh, it's usually cheaper to, to buy food that is bad for your health and for the planet than it is to buy food that's good for your health and good for the planet. That there seems to me something deeply wrong with a food system that, that leads to that quandary. I suppose people listening will, will think what's a lot of this discussion been about to do with biodiversity and it boils down to the demand for land and sea resources really which is driven by how different societies around the globe are living at the moment and within the uk within scotland you know our demands on the global systems of you know producing things from from land and from from the oceans isn't sustainable so we're consuming things faster then it can be, it, the world can support us. So we have to think about how we we can adapt what we do. And you know we have an ongoing issue with uh, with the oceans around the UK, where we have effectively switched how the ecosystems worked to one that is still producing fish, but at a much lower rate than it could do if we we change the management. There's some really interesting no take zones now which if, if we employed those more, then these can form the fo focus of where the fish come to breed and young fish can survive. And then that exports that, those larger fish into the wider ocean where they can be used and harvested. But we've, we've kind of changed the way the seas work so that they're, they're very different from what they could be. And uh, so they're really disturbed and really unproductive systems but because of technology we can continue to extract fish from them uh, there was an interesting figure during i found during the report that it takes 97 times more effort to deliver a ton of fish to land than it did do a century ago because we've exhausted the productive capacity of our seas but we can still extract because of the technology that we've got mm -hmm. So actually a, a change in mindset and a change and sort of thinking strategically rather than thinking about what we can do next year, what, you know, what, what's the stable next year, thinking 10 years, 50 years down the line about how we can change, how we manage land and, and the seas to keep delivering rather than just thinking about the short term. Yeah, land and sea are really just other words for nature when it comes down to it. There's been quite a bit of work done recently on, on healthy food systems for, for, for both people and, and planet from varied sources. They all have some quite 
dominant themes. Just referring back to the report that um, Henry Dimbleby did last year or the year before on our national food system and pointed out some of the significant dietary shifts that would be required for, for health purposes, 30% reduction in meat intake, 50% uh, increase in fruit and veg, significant reductions in uh, high fat, sugar, salt diets, and increases in fiber. And then parallel with that, the um, recommendations in terms of healthy diets for people and planet generally suggest less meat intake and you know much greater intakes for plants and, and fruit and vegetables. And if you think about it, that's more or less kind of replicating the productivity of natural systems. I guess in some ways it's a bit of an irony. We've got to go back a bit back in time when we had the closer relationship with land and what we got off the land and we were more sustainable with it. But we're, because we're such a bigger population now and are globally in, interconnected, we can't just go back to that. I don't know, it might be rose-tinted idyll back <laughs> then. It's a much more complex challenge to to work out. I think that's right. And that might be something we might come back to in a, in another discussion. But our relationship with nature is really profound in, in the way that we we relate to it um, and we use nature or we how we see our relationship with it. And the degree of exploitation or over-exploitation uh, really comes down to those kind of fundamental viewpoints, which ultimately come from how connected we are with nature, wherever we live, in towns and cities and in rural settings and so on. We've done many things to create a disconnect between ourselves and nature. And again, from COVID lockdowns, I think we all realised just how important those connections are. And then on that international basis, trying to be connected with natural systems of food that comes from places that we don't even know where it's come from. How do you have that connection with those natural environments? And I'm going to wrap us up there. Um, I want to thank our guests again, um, Dr. Clive Mitchell and Professor Robin Pakeman. Thank you also to you, the listeners, for joining us. We hope you'll join us for the final podcast in this mini-series when we'll enjoy, be joined again by Nature Scott to look at who gets a say, who can we trust, and who stands to gain or lose from doing things differently to help our biodiversity. Do like and share the podcast, and of course, subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Just search Hutton Highlights, and until next time, stay safe. Thank you.